listening to the weekly podcast presented by the Lighthouse Midlothian. For more information, please visit us at www.dfwlighthouse.org. Thank you. guest speaker. We had to book him months and months in advance. I introduce Peter Lewiston. Hey, thank you. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Let's let people get seated here. So yeah, this is a great privilege. It's an honor to be able to teach and it's a great weight as you guys know. <laughs> Standing up here with a mic and speaking to the body. And it's a profound thing. It's a serious thing. And so right now, I just pray, Holy Spirit, that I would speak your words. And that you would guide my thoughts. And there's a purpose that you have me speaking today. And so I submit that to you. I submit my agenda and what I feel you have given me. I submit that to you. And I just pray that you would guide me and that you would open our hearts for what you have for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, if you're looking behind me, that is butt sweat. <laughs> if you can see it, sorry. Just get it out of the way right now because I was... I was, I was really embarrassed about it, and I, I was like, I stood up earlier to try to air it out, because I play drums, and it gets hot in there, so I was, I was in the bathroom like, come on, but, you know, I, there's just nothing I can do about it, you know, I sweat, <laughs> so yeah, I just thought I'd start with a laugh, nothing like humiliation to keep you humble. So I'm a teacher, and naturally, when I teach, uh, I like to use, you know, things from my own life, as many of us. Uh, when we think about God and our relationship to God, then we tend to draw parallels to what our natural life is like. For example, how we see God as a father tends to be how we saw our own father. We have to deal with that. Uh, how we treat others tends to be just an extension of how we feel God has treated us or has not treated us in a certain way. And, and so I was thinking about what God wanted me to share. And so I, I was thinking about this during testing. And if you're a teacher, you know that testing's a big thing, especially in the public schools. And you just have to walk around the room as your students are testing. It takes four hours. So I'm walking around the room. No one can talk. And I can't do anything but just walk and observe what people are doing. And I, I recalled this conversation as I was walking of uh, a teacher I'd heard earlier that day in the lounge. And normally I try to duck out of the lounge pretty quick before any of the teachers start talking because it's just gossip. And I try to, and it's mainly ladies because I teach in the elementary. So as, as you may well know, there's just a lot of gossip when there's a lot of ladies. Sorry, that's just how it is. And so I was trying to duck out early, but right as I was ducking out, I heard this teacher say, you know, I just can't stand this other woman. I go into her classroom and I can hear a pin drop. The students never talk. It's like there's no life in her classroom. And she's all over me because I like my kids to talk and I like to 
have them up and running around and playing, and I think that's how learning should be. And this woman just, she won't, you know, it's my team lead, so, you know, my team lead just won't get off me. She just wants me to teach like her. And I heard that, luckily, I ducked out. Like, I was, I was gone, so I just pretended like I didn't hear anything. But I, that stuck with me. I was walking around my classroom as my students were testing, and I was thinking, you know, what would I rather? I mean, what would be the best environment for a classroom to learn in? Would it be an environment where, where you're not allowed to talk and you're totally quiet and you're focused? I mean, I, I want you to raise your hand. How many think that would be an environment to learn in? Think about it. You have to vote for one of these. So if you want to wait to vote, you can hear the other option. Or, you know, I, I teach in a Title I district. Uh, uh, overwhelming percentage of my students are at risk. Um, they, a lot of them don't have accountability at home. So the little bit of freedom you give them, they take it. And they take it quick. And they abuse it. And they abuse it. So with that context, what would be better? To have this classroom just full of flexible rules and you can get up and you can walk around and you can talk and it's called collaborative learning or would it be better to have this very disciplined approach and I'm going to take a vote now so get ready seriously you got to vote and I'm watching you can't vote for both and you can't vote for neither you have to vote who says that in the environment the classroom that I'm teaching in who says that it would be better to have a very disciplined approach and not allowing them to talk very quiet the whole time okay who says that it would be better to have a collaborative approach regardless of behavior they just they're able to talk rules are more flexible okay interesting you, you know and I think that we tend to we would vote along our disposition right we have our opinions about what we needed to learn what it is that we needed to have a structured life. And some of us, I'm sure the ones that raised their hand for the disciplined approach, a very strict, maybe a stringent approach, maybe you tend to do that in your own life. You're very structured, you have a schedule. I mean, sorry, Uncle Paul, but I'm going to have to throw you under the bus here. Uh, my Uncle Paul's here today, and he, he tells me that there's Michelle time, and then there's, there's real time. <laughs> sorry, Uncle Paul. And uh, so uh, maybe I didn't see Michelle vote, but maybe Uncle Paul would tend to be the disciplined one, and Aunt Michelle might be the more flexible one. But uh, thanks for letting me share that. And I, I took it further. Yeah. <laughs> they, came, they came up to support me. They were wonderful, my aunt and uncle, and their uh, daughter, Lisa. Hey, Lisa. So... It made me think about my relationship with God. You know, my, the classroom is just a microcosm of, of our relationship as a people, as a society. I mean, that's what a classroom is. It's 27 students and one teacher. And you all have hopefully the same goal, which is supposed to be facilitated by the teacher. We're working collaborative, collaboratively with a mutual objective to learn what we need to learn, right? It's the same in our society. We have the rule of law. We have rules about how to drive. We have rules about where we can throw trash away because we have a mutual objective, correct? We, we want a clean place. We want safety on our roads. But I have these students in my room. And when I try to see, I'm, I'm on the spectrum in between. And notice I didn't give you that option to vote for that. But see, all of us aren't black or white. We are all on a spectrum. 
we are all individual. We all have just these grades of understanding and how we would do things, shades of gray, maybe if you want to say that, but just this unending spectrum from black to white of how we would want to do things. And so I submit this to God every morning when I teach. I show up early on purpose because it's just overwhelming. What do I need to do? Do I need to be that strict disciplinarian or do I need to be that gracious teacher? Because it changes from day to day. It got me to thinking about our Father God. And so what I'm going to share this morning, it's not going to be very long. It made me think of a verse in the book of James. James chapter 2, verse 12. And if you want to turn there, you can. It's James chapter 2, verse 12. And in James chapter 2, verse 12, James writes that we are to speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. And it ends with this exclamation, mercy triumphs over what? Mercy triumphs over judgment. So if we're going to understand judgment, well, first of all, if we're going to understand mercy, we have to understand what judgment is. And if we're going to understand judgment, we have to understand what a trespass is. If we're going to understand trespass, we have to understand what a boundary is. So I have these students in my room that are just incorrigible. That's a British word, I think. We don't use it much in America. It just means they're not... They're, they're like bent, and they're not going to straighten out. It's like no matter how many times you correct them, they're incorrigible. They just, you straighten them out, and then they go, Bang! It's like going to the hardware store, and you're going to, you, you know, you need a set of two-by-fours to build a wall, and you've got you to gotta make sure they're straight, because if you take one home that's all crooked and bent, if you try to rig that so that it's stuck in the wall, it's just going to shoot back out. It's going to keep its same position. It's made that way. You have these kids that are just incorrigible, and Oh, it drains me because I keep telling them over and over and over and over, and I tend to be more gracious. You know, you got to get this right. I talk with their parents. I speak with them, and they just keep getting it wrong. And I think about our Father God, and I think about the one law that Adam and Eve had <laughs> in this beautiful place, the Garden of Eden. Do not touch the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One law. That was it. One law. They had a good they didn't have, you know, Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the whole book of the law. They just had this one law, and what did they do? They made the wrong choice when presented with a temptation. And the temptation was this. Satan comes in the form of a snake, and he introduces this thought in their mind, this doubt. Perhaps in the heart of our creator, there's something malevolent. Perhaps he doesn't have your best interest at heart. You know, perhaps if you knew what he knows we would do better as the ruler of our own destiny. What was introduced as what we call sin, really all it is, is it's doubt that God has our best in mind, coupled with pride or arrogance that we presume that we know what's best for us. I mean, this is sin. And out of this root is what grows all sorts of wickedness, this idea that we know what's best. 
It moves on for centuries. After Adam and Eve are cursed, they can no longer eat of the tree of life, therefore they die. Generations go by, and then this man named Noah appears, a righteous man. In a generation of people and exceeding wickedness, it says God had grown weary. <laughs> he could no longer deal with his creation, and he was going to destroy them. And he sees Noah. Noah has done what was right in God's eyes, while everyone else around him, it says, was doing what was right in their own eyes. Someone who had a devotion and an obedience to the Creator, who still recognized the boundary that God had created, that it was not up to us to decide our fate, it was up to God. This man, Noah, God made a covenant with him because of his faithfulness. It says in Hebrews, because of his faithfulness, not because of his good works, but because of his faithfulness, God makes a covenant with him. He says he'll never again destroy humanity. And then through the line of Shem, we come to Abraham. And Abraham is another man of righteousness. And because of his faith and his devotion, recognizing that God has the right to direct our lives and not ourselves. God sees this and makes a covenant with him that his offspring will be as numerous as the sand on the seashore. You guys with me on this? Just doing a real quick survey real quick. And then we have Moses on the scene. And God sees Moses. And he says, you're going to deliver my people. I see in you your devotion to me. And then we have Joshua, his devotion to God. And he was chosen as leader. And then we have Ruth, who wasn't even a Jew, who was chosen because of her devotion. And in her offspring, we have David, the king, because of his devotion to God, is chosen and given a covenant by God that there will never, ever fail to be a king of the Davidic line on the throne. And, of course, we see that in Christ, Christ, the son of David. And so I've just brought you through a very quick history, but the point I'm going to make, each of these people recognize something. They recognize that God had created us not to decide our own fates, but to relinquish that control and to have faith that God would direct us. Now, I know this is probably simple for us. This is just Sunday school. But if we're going to go deeper, What is it about rules and laws that really messes us up? Because we still strive. We struggle. And as Christians, even though we've been given this new heart, Paul says that the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. Every one of us in this room, we struggle every moment, every day. This doubt, coupled with pride in our heart, our fleshly heart, still has a hold on us. I want to read a story out of Luke chapter 7. Verse 36. And in Luke chapter 7, verse 36, this is when the sinful woman anoints Jesus. 
starting in verse 36. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is teaching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something I want to tell you. Okay, tell me, teacher, he said. Suppose two men owed money to a certain moneylender, and one owed him 500 denarii and the other 50, and neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, well, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And the other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? To understand mercy, we have to understand judgment. And to understand judgment, we have to understand boundaries. And to understand the boundary, we have to understand the authority. God is our creator. He has absolute authority. He has the rights to the glory that come with authority. We've been created in his image. And it's no wonder that America has such a robust system of patents and copyrights. It's because we're created in his image. We want the glory of creation. When we create something and it's stolen from us, that's wrong. That was mine. Property rights. I mean, it's a, basic of, uh, a basis of democracy, right? But we see something else happening with Jesus and this woman. See, the woman had over and over sinned, done shameful things, did not give her life as she should have to God, and therefore she was experiencing the consequences. She had the reputation of being a shameful woman, of being a, a prostitute, really, someone that Jesus shouldn't touch. And in the moment, God had the absolute right, Jesus had the absolute right to judge her, 
in that very moment, he does something that had never been done. He extended something called mercy and love. Mercy was withholding the judgment that was due her. And the love was filling up the void that she owed. In my classroom, when a child breaks the rules, there are consequences. And I have the choice, as the authority, the creator of those rules, I have the choice of withholding those consequences and offering grace. As Christians, we have the right, the decision to make of withholding forgiveness to those who offend us. We have that right. Because if someone transgresses against us, we have the authority to judge them. We do. Something was introduced that day when Jesus said to this woman in the sight of all those Pharisees, it's not the fact that she broke the law. It's the fact that she understood that she could never fulfill it. See, the law, God created it, but he knew that we were disqualified from the start. He, he knew we could never meet it. He knew that. It's not like it was a second go. Okay, first try. Let's see if they meet the law. Okay, they're holy. It worked. No. See, he knew when he gave that law, it, it wasn't going to work. They were going to fail. We were disqualified. It's because it says in Jeremiah chapter 31 that there was something new that he was cooking up. He had planned that he was going to write the law in their hearts. Jeremiah chapter 31, that one day there would be a fulfillment of the law in Christ Jesus, the Messiah, and that we would be released from that judgment and that we could live in his mercy and in his grace. We have a woman doing this incredible thing to Jesus because she recognized something, that she didn't have what it took to be righteous. So why does mercy triumph over judgment? It's because every one of us, I'm not going to go back to the verse, but you can look at it for yourself. The pretext to that says in James that if we have failed in one point in following the commands of God, we have failed in every point. And there is no hierarchy of sin. Well, you say, what about the child molester? What about the coach who molested all those women, those young girls? What about the man who murdered all of these Jewish people in, this, in their congregation? Isn't that a hierarchy? I mean, isn't that worse? I mean, it says right there when he's, when he's speaking to Simon the Pharisee, it says that he who has been forgiven much loves much, and he who's been forgiven little 
loves little. I mean, when I was growing up in church, I thought that meant that because I'm a Christian kid and I never did drugs and I never, you know, uh, did anything that was really serious. I just dealt with the little sins, you know, little sins. I always felt like I didn't have a great love because I didn't experience great sin. And I would, uh, I remember growing up in this church, actually, and I would hear people share testimonies, and they would talk about these just incredibly wicked things um, that had happened to them or they had done in their life. And they would use that verse, and they'd say, and I, my testimony is this, because God has saved me from these incredible sins. My love is, you know, I love more in proportion than others. And I, I remember being tricked by that, thinking, well, I, I, I could never do that because I never experienced those things. The extent to which we can offer mercy is only the extent to which we understand our debt. The extent to which we can offer love to our neighbor is only to the extent that we understand the love that was given us. It was never about the sins that you committed. It was never about this woman and her shameful acts. She just broke rules, laws. God had something at the center of those laws, and it wasn't about the laws. The Pharisees had missed the forest for the trees. It was all about the heart of devotion of the person who was willing to give God control and relinquish their own control. That's the heart of the law. And if you have any doubts, what does Jesus say? When asked what the greatest commandment is, he says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. The heart of devotion is the fulfillment of the law. It was never about the laws the sinful woman broke. It was about the recognition that Jesus could see in her heart that she had a heart of devotion. That she understood that she would never meet the law and she understood that all she could do was offer everything she had because she knew Jesus was all she needed. Sorry, I'm just listening. I want you to think about the last time someone judged you. Or maybe just a time that someone judged you and found you wanting. I want you to reflect on those feelings. What it made you feel like. And I want you to think about the last time that you judged someone. I want you to think 
about the feelings they may have felt. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Holy Spirit, we recognize the depravity of our flesh. We are bent. We are bent towards doing the wrong thing in our fleshly heart. And this sin of Adam, it's in our heart. But you say that you have given us a new heart with your law written on it. You say that you have given us a new mind that you are transforming the way that we think to the way that you think. So we stand before you as a church because there is no earthly system that can offer the mercy that changes a person and I am overwhelmed because every day I go into a place where there is no better image <laughs> of the sinful nature rebelling against rules. Children in their most potent sinful nature, no social filters, just rude and disrespectful and mean, but yet at the heart of it, at the heart of it, there is this mercy available. The school can't fix it. Society can't fix it. The government can't fix it. The prisons can't fix it. And so we find the power of the gospel that only in your mercy and only in the love that we extend from our understanding of that mercy and grace. See, we are the changers. We are the movers and the shakers. I'm sorry. I'm just having a conversation <laughs> with God. Guide us as a body. We just feel it so deeply. When we think about the judgment that we've caused other people to feel and we compare it with the judgment that we've felt and we recognize that we are incapable of meeting your righteous commandments and we fall into your grace, the sacrifice of your son, and we ask that in this grace you would drive us to extend this mercy because it is only by our love that they will know us. It says that. It's only by our love for one another that they will recognize. And it is only by that mercy extended that we change. Holy Spirit. <laughs>
Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your mercy. We want to change the world around us. We want to love and to be an example of you on the earth. We want to bring healing to broken relationships. We want to extend your mercy to those who the world says do not deserve mercy. And it is only in your light that we know light. It is only in your love that we recognize love. You showed us love, and that's the only way we know it. That when we were yet failures, when we were yet sinners, you died for us. Extending a mercy that we never deserved. And giving us a grace to accomplish what we could never accomplish on our own. done every time we extend mercy to someone who doesn't deserve it. Every time one of my little fifth graders comes up to me and I extend mercy, there's that brilliant flash because it's not physical and it's not spiritual. It's both together. It's God incarnate. It's love. It's Jesus on earth. Withholding what someone deserves and giving them what they did not ever earn. And if we, like you, could walk into our daily lives, and I fail so much, Lord, give us grace not to break the bruised reeds, grace not to quench the spark of a wick, but just like you did for this woman, you shielded her from the wind that would have put out her flame. You gently and gingerly straightened her out. we are still able to extend that mercy. 